In May of 2023, Jeffrey Hinton, often heralded as the father of AI, parted ways with Google. He sought an unfiltered platform to voice his concerns over the impending perils of cutting-edge artificial intelligence. Critical of the work being done, he started advocating for a moderated approach to AI development, along with many other luminaries in the tech world, cautioning us of a future where AI may shadow human intellect. In response to Hinton's departure, Meredith Whitaker, a co-founder and faculty director of the AI Now Institute, voiced her own perspective, expressing a certain disappointment at Hinton's delayed advocacy. In her words, it's a letdown to witness this late-stage career redemption act from someone who remained silent when the likes of Temnit Gabru, Meg Mitchell, and others were courting real dangers at an earlier point in their careers. These brave individuals were striving to halt some of the most hazardous tendencies of the corporations that shape the technology we now know as artificial intelligence. Meredith continues her argument saying that, the success of voicing apprehensions about AI fundamentally relies on the safety of those who dare to raise their voices. Therefore, if you don't support us when we're being ousted from our jobs, when others are experiencing retaliation and research is suppressed, then you are tacitly condoning an environment that penalizes those who speak out. In our current era, where the fervor for implementing AI technology is reaching a fever pitch, the critical question emerges. How do we responsibly navigate the deployment of this revolutionary technology? And more importantly, how can we do so in a way that prioritizes ethics and meaning? We welcome you to the Responsible Use of AI podcast, a podcast committed to fostering conversations amongst a diverse array of scholars. Together, we delve into the intricacies of AI technologies and tools, scrutinizing their implications and the ethical responsibilities we must shoulder before their widespread deployment. Because AI holds the potential to radically disrupt many sectors, our mission is to help ensure that the transformative power of AI is as beneficial and equitable as possible. For example, AI in healthcare stands out as a key sector for disruption. For diseases like colorectal cancer, AI has shown immense promise in predictive analytics, diagnosis, and prognostic determinations, outperforming human accuracy in some cases. However, despite its potential, a darker side of AI is also evident. Research shows that the AI algorithms and models we create often carry biases, specifically against marginalized and racialized groups. Consequently, AI could have devastating and life-changing impacts on these communities if left unchecked. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Lowen Cologne, and I'm joined by our two co-hosts, Vanessa Ferguson and Akanksha Kondwaha. We begin with acknowledging that we are gathered and recording on indigenous land, specifically the ancestral territory of the Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe, that has been inhabited by indigenous peoples before the land was colonized by settlers. As settlers on indigenous lands, we are grateful for the chance to gather on these lands and commit ourselves to honoring and respecting the generational care and wisdom through our work and with indigenous communities. This means continuing collective efforts to acknowledge and mitigate the harms produced and endured by colonization, which can all become exacerbated in the age of AI. While a land acknowledgement is an important step, we believe that ending settler colonialism and white supremacy are equally as important. So we urge you to move beyond deep considerations and to take action to decolonize these lands and end occupation. In today's conversation, 
we shine a light on how to make AI safe and fair for indigenous communities, specifically exploring the necessary conditions to ensure the tools and technologies we develop with AI support and uplift these populations rather than do more harm. Join us as we explore this pressing issue in our ongoing quest to make AI work responsibly for everyone. Our guest today is Dr. Robin K. Rowe. Dr. Rowe is a First Nations Anishinaabe postdoc fellow at Queen's University, whose research focuses on indigenous sovereignty, decolonization, and data in artificial intelligence. Dr. Rowe has also started her own consultancy to continue her work in service to indigenous nations. Welcome, Dr. Rowe. Ani bojo kwekwe Robin Ron Indijnakaz, Wabi Makwan Dodem, Temi Ogama Nindonjiba. So my name is Robin and I'm a First Nations woman on my maternal side with mixed ancestry on my paternal side. I am a registered member of Metachewan First Nation, but I'm a hereditary member of Temi Ogama Anishinaabe, which is along Lake Tamagami in Northeastern Ontario. Uh, I'm a mother of four and I am capable of doing this work only because I have the wonderful support of my partner, Chris. Um, in terms of the work that I am doing, it's kind of a next step in the progression of my degrees. So I hold a master's in Indigenous relations and a PhD in rural and northern health. And um, I was looking at, originally, I was looking at mental health throughout my PhD, but then I really started diving into the history and looking at five centuries of capital and consumption-led sort of um, economies and the drivers that were assimilating, dispossessing, and colonizing Indigenous peoples. And so that eventually led to me being part of some bigger conversations around Indigenous data sovereignty and Indigenous data governance, which I fell in love with. And I was originally doing that off the side of my desk. Um, and just kind of like my passion work, which ended up actually becoming the overall uh, purpose of my PhD. And throughout that sort of growth and journey of just looking at the history and the present of Indigenous data and sovereignty and governance and its relationship to extraction and the land, um, I started thinking much more about the future, which sort of led me into the conversations around Indigenous digital rights, decolonization and data uh, in the artificial intelligence space. And so it was from sort of a social justice perspective that um, I started getting increasingly involved with looking forward instead of only looking sort of back and, and at the present time. And um, so at the moment, it's, you know, I'm a qualitative researcher. I'm not a quantitative researcher. So being in a space speaking exclusively about data um, and, and governance and trying to advance these conversations for Indigenous people, it's a little bit strange when people hear that, you know, I'm not an epidemiologist, or I'm not a data scientist, that I'm really a critical thinker around the potential benefits and harms of data for Indigenous peoples and all of their various applications. So I'll segue into um, the first couple of questions. So Robin, in 2022, you co-authored the paper titled the Care Principles for Indigenous Data Governance. Could you explain your contributions and how this work came to be? Um, and also, what are the care principles for Indigenous data governance and what might they mean in the age of AI? Sure, yeah. Um, 
Well, it, it began during my PhD, as I mentioned, I was doing work around uh, specifically First Nations mental health, but I had this really fantastic supervisor who uh, saw potential and in, in, in my interest around Indigenous data sovereignty. And that was during a class she was teaching and she had asked everybody to kind of come up with a topic and write a paper. And so I had done that and it just so happened to be in a space that she herself was sort of tiptoeing into at that time. And this was around 2017. And so in her excitement over this paper I had written, she invited me to um, Gabadon, Botswana, where there was a research data alliance conference happening and indigenous scholars from all over the world were coming together to talk about indigenous data sovereignty. And I was really excited because I was just starting out in this space. I didn't know too much about it. And so in it was actually at that conference where uh, indigenous scholars from all over the world who in their respective regions have been advancing these uh, data governance conversations we all were sitting around together talking about, you know, what principles do you have in your country or in your location and starting to pull those principles together to get sort of a, a, a global narrative around what, what would a sort of overarching umbrella, if you have nothing else, this is what you can levy, what would it look like if we combined perspectives from people from New Zealand, Australia, Canada, um, the United States, Africa, um, all over the place. It was really, it was really incredible. And uh, so that's sort of where the care principles were born. And we were, we were sitting around during this conference and going through the, all of our different papers from around the world and all of the different models. So in Canada, we have the First Nations principles of ownership, control, access, and possession, which are really considered in a lot of spaces as the first Indigenous data governance mechanism, because it really was at the time, none, nothing like this existed. And uh, so um, the First Nations principles of OCAP were really leading this this discussion globally. And so people were putting down their different governance structures and we were trying to figure out what the um, what the common threads were throughout them to ensure that we were sort of encapsulating all of that. And the real goal of developing these principles was to make sure that as data became increasingly open, there's a set of principles called the FAIR principles, which are data science principles around data that needs to be findable, accessible, interoperable, and reusable. And what those principles failed to do was take into consideration um, the inherent rights of Indigenous peoples. And so the CARE principles, which stand for collective benefit, authority to control responsibility and ethics, um, those really came in and were about ensuring that Indigenous peoples' knowledges and our ways of doing effective, beneficial data work uh, were kind of woven through. So you'll see in different spaces, you'll see be fair and care to ensure that we're not only uh, prioritizing non-Indigenous views, but that in these spaces, we have this embedded sort of ensuring that Indigenous authority over the control and access and analysis of data as part of those conversations, that um, the work is, is being controlled by Indigenous peoples for purposes that are beneficial to Indigenous peoples, that there is this responsibility to ensure that this is there's a reciprocal relationship that advances Indigenous peoples' rights to uh, data governance 
end that advances Indigenous people's governance over data. And um, yeah, really just making sure as well that Indigenous people's ethical priorities are taken into consideration where you know there's a minimizing harm, maximizing benefit for Indigenous peoples throughout the entire data life cycle is, uh, is really relevant in that space. Um, but in terms of how, what does that mean in the age of AI? Upon reflection, despite, you know, even being there, I don't recall us having conversations about AI when, when we were in, the, when we were designing the care principles. And so I don't think that, you know, five years ago, we were having the kinds of conversations that we're having right now around AI in very many spaces. So like many data governance principles, whether they're Indigenous or not, they were designed without AI in mind. And so there is um, an opportunity to build upon and expand and grow these specific principles to ensure that they're in alignment with Indigenous people's priorities as technology continues to advance. That's that's wild, Robin. I'm curious. Like, is it was it just the timing where where they were thinking that, or like they they like some of these were developed without thinking directly about AI, or what was going on where, yeah, where AI wasn't kind of part of the conversation there. I think that um, well, there's a couple things really. I think it's we're talking data governance principles coming together from around the world to create this set of principles. So for instance, the First Nations principles of OCAP were developed in the 90s. And so in the 90s, um, when those principles were developed, they were developed likely not really thinking too hard about artificial intelligence of the future, because it does feel like something, um, you know, 10 years ago, looking into the future, you're like, ah, no, that's never going to happen. And, you know, it feels a little, a little science fiction-y. And so even to think the principles we were using to design these principles, those principles were born in a time where um, artificial intelligence wasn't a conversation. So to say it's woven through it as, as, a, as a premise would be, I think, inaccurate. I think that it has benefit in um, because it's so, you know, it's so universal. It's such an umbrella way of thinking, looking at data that benefits everybody, looking at data where Indigenous people have control and that you're being responsible and that you're adhering to ethics. Those things are great. But if, um, if those platforms aren't also developed, you know, if the ethical protocols don't have AI embedded in them as, as part of the conversation, for instance, then um, how, how could it possibly be sort of part of it? Or even thinking, you know, in communities, um, the conversations around AI are very minimal when you're, when you're actually in communities, because there's just you know, there's other things to worry about, especially when it comes to healthcare yeah. and the current system. So, but so, but the data justice, like already questions concerning the use of data, was was happening in those early stages that just hadn't applied to AI directly. Mm-hmm. Yes, and that's what this is, right? These are these are meant to be um, data justice drivers for Indigenous peoples as a sort of framework to help guide that, but because AI wasn't part of the conversation, it does leave room for growth. I think there's also something to be said about like, um, I don't know, AI being such a big buzzword now and it encompassing so many different things. I think like maybe five years ago, people would say big data. 
And now people are saying AI to represent big data. So I don't know if Robin, you think that there was a difference in the conversations you're having because of the hype around AI or if there's people, or if you're actually thinking about like the difference between like delineating between data justice and justice with AI and machine learning and all of that in mind. Um, just trying to wrap my head around the question. So for instance, five years ago, I was at a conference in, um, I think it was in Alberta. I was in Alberta at this big international data linkage conference that was happening. And um, at that conference, there were some people there who were doing presentations on AI in the healthcare data space and data linkage using AI. And um, from the sort of sociological perspective and thinking about health and its relationship to like the right now, um, even myself as a PhD at that time, I didn't go to those events. I didn't, I didn't go and watch those because it was so over my head, um, that I, it just felt like, oh no, that's, that's impossible. We're never going to get to a place where we're using AI and healthcare to such an extent that, you know, we have to concern ourselves with robots and such. Um, you know, operating all on their own, but it's, you know, upon, upon retrospection, like there was definitely globally, there was conversations happening about AI, but were those conversations down at these levels where, um, where we're implementing different governance processes or, or protocols when working with AI? Um, no, I don't, or when working with data, I, I don't, I couldn't say that anybody had it sort of in their forefront. I mean, I'm not living in everybody's head, but I know it wasn't a conversation in the room. And I think that's largely related to the fact that at that point, I mean, we're talking about um, not having control, right? Indigenous peoples were struggling to even have, have research being done in a way that respected Indigenous people's priorities that were like on, on the minimal level. So talking about those bigger sort of artificial intelligence also be in a conversation. Um, I just don't think it was there. And in terms of big data, like, yes, absolutely. There were conversations happening about big data, but were those conversations linked to AI? Again, I not in the spaces that I heard. Um, so I don't know. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, definitely. I'm personally, you know, um, just getting into this field. So I don't know what it was like five years ago or 10 mm -hmm. years ago. So it's interesting to hear what the conversations were like five years ago and what you'd started off doing and now what it's kind of changed into and turned into. Yeah, yeah. And keep in mind too, I mean, I was a student. So for me, it was very, it was very focused. The things that I, I was looking at, the things, you know, I don't know if... Um, there's any students out there listening or if any of you you're saying you're a student but if if there is information that doesn't feel like it's part of the immediate then it's sort of something that you're not holding and so for me I was still a student 
And so I wasn't holding the information. If it was passing me, I wasn't hearing it because it was beyond my comprehension at that time, beyond my ability. I was still learning the basics, let alone the bigger things. So. Yeah, so many of us get caught in that. But I mean, this is why it's important to even have these types of conversations, right? So it's like we're creating kind of a slow holding space for for new things to come in and people to take time to hear something in a, in a different way. So no, that's great. Uh, Vanessa, do you want, should we move on to the, the next question for the topic? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I guess based on um, what you're just describing, a lot of your work also focuses and highlights Indigenous data sovereignty. So I was hoping you could explain um, what that means verbatim and how can we ensure that Indigenous data sovereignty is um, honored when we deploy AI, especially in healthcare, just as you mentioned, um, some of the data governance principles, they weren't really focusing on the bigger picture of AI at the time, but how can we, you know, um, honor some of these things when AI is going to be deployed? Yeah, so there's there's three key definitions that are pretty common when you're looking into Indigenous data sovereignty and in that space. And, and the three is, um, the first is Indigenous data. So defining Indigenous data as any information in any format that affects Indigenous lives at the individual or collective levels. So that can be about our land, our resources, our people, and our nations. Indigenous data sovereignty um, protecting that data is the rights of Indigenous peoples to govern the collection, application, and ownership of Indigenous data and information. And then we have governance, which is um, Indigenous data governance or mechanisms. They, they are the ways in which we activate Indigenous data sovereignty. So that is why the care principles are a data governance, a set of data governance principles, because they're a mechanism that's meant to advance sovereignty. Um, and so when it comes to thinking about Indigenous data sovereignty and its relationship in this AI space, I think, you know, we'll, we'll dive probably deeper into it as we go. Um, but the rights of Indigenous peoples are inherent. They're not granted. They're not earned externally. It's not some law that's passed that is, is then um, giving Indigenous peoples permission. When, when you hear policies and you hear different um, you know, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples being uh, adopted, what it is, is, is it's an acknowledgement of Indigenous Peoples' rights. It's not a, a handing over of those rights. It is that in Canada, our federal, provincial, ministerial governments recognize that Indigenous Peoples have rights that supersede, and they acknowledge those rights. Um, and those rights, because of those rights, when it comes to this world where data is being collected and, and used for purposes uh, that may or may not benefit Indigenous peoples, this motion of data sovereignty comes in in order to ensure that uh, Indigenous-led data governance is part of the, the process, that Indigenous peoples and communities and the people who, are in, who, may, have, uh, who may be impacted by the outputs and the process of using and, and reporting on Indigenous people's lives, because that's what those data represent, that, that there is involvement. And so that, in, that in requires um, different organizations, universities, the, the government, um, 
whether private or, or public, that requires people to go through the process of ensuring that Indigenous peoples are involved in the conversations and that the appropriate Indigenous peoples are involved in those conversations. You don't want to be doing research in Ontario and have all of your Indigenous partners out in BC um, to advance research in Ontario. That doesn't make sense. So you would want to have partners who are appropriate to the region and the region that the data is on. And that requires time. That requires resources. It requires a whole lot of education all around. It requires this sort of um, self-decolonizing and, and a whole bunch of planning, which are essential to make sure that um, as we continue to deploy AI across the health space, that we are making sure we have the appropriate people involved, the appropriate resources allotted to the appropriate places, so that this can be done in the best way possible. Thank you. And just a follow-up question about that. Um, do you think that, you know, beyond um, people in your research communities, do you think that people deploying this kind of stuff are even beginning to think about, you know, honoring Indigenous data sovereignty and kind of thinking about what that really could mean? Or do you think it's something that um, a lot of um, these people in these places are unaware of um, just by, based on, you know, your own place in this research? Um, how do you feel that others are kind of responding to this need? I do believe that there is a lot of work being done in this space, particularly as Indigenous peoples uh, start to speak up for specifically data rights and information rights. Um, I think there's still a lot of learning to be done on both sides, whether Indigenous or not Indigenous. And, and there is a lot of movement happening at a, a federal level, at a national level, I mean, um, and provincially around ensuring that Indigenous peoples in different regards are part of those discussions. Uh, the challenge, though, is that um, there's, not, there's not enough time most of the time we have these acts and these policies that are constantly being sort of pushed out and and moved faster than um, conversations could even be had the implementation of the UNDRIP I think is a big one uh, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples I mean its deployment was initially put forward as an act by an Indigenous person and represent representative of Indigenous peoples and that ended up being um it ended up being squashed when it when it got to the final reading in Parliament. And in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of a global pandemic, somehow in 2020, I believe, um, in December 2020, in the middle of a pandemic, if I remember correctly, the, the federal government managed to push through the UNDRIP Act that we now have implemented across the country uh, with, I mean, they might say involvement, but little to no involvement from the appropriate Indigenous peoples, peoples working in the spaces that could be impacted by um, the, 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 the implementation of this bill. And so I think that um, as we sort of make our way through ensuring that Indigenous peoples are involved, there is a lot of opportunity to do more than just lip service. And I think that's sometimes what's happening is there's a lot of um, there's a lot of dollars being funded to support the advancements of, of 
uh, data repositories, data linkage, data cross borders, uh, open data, and all of their uses in AI and technological advancements that were actually leaving out a layer where there needs to be thorough Indigenous involvement. Do you think part of this might actually also kind of be coupled with the idea that maybe a lot of these companies, a lot of these organizations are kind of doing the land acknowledgement scenario again, where it's like they think if they've mentioned it or if they've said something about it, then they don't actually have to 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 be as involved as they might need to be otherwise? Yeah, yeah, I absolutely do. I think it's, um, there's, you know, even, even as new policies are being pushed through, even as we speak, um, there are different acts that are coming into play that will have a direct implication on Indigenous peoples in different fields, in, in, the, um, in the justice field, for instance, or in the healthcare field. And those conversations are happening with individual Indigenous peoples. I've been, I've been reached out to, but I am one voice and I do not speak for all Indigenous peoples. And what ends up happening is that my words end up being put into some report somewhere without an action on top, the same way that a land acknowledgement without action is re- redundant. Um, you know, putting all these nice words into this beautiful report and then doing the complete opposite of what that report is suggesting isn't doing anything good for Indigenous peoples. Yeah, they just, I mean, uh, the word people think the words are enough and then there's there's doesn't seem to be like governing bodies making sure the actions are are taking place or like who, who's the authority ensuring that that the things actually happen i can yeah i can imagine that being extremely frustrating mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and one of the the words that i've heard and I, this isn't this isn't my word i i don't remember um i'm not sure who actually originally said it but um the idea of reconciliation, these motions of reconciliation that we have where, you know, oh, we're going to go and we're going to talk to Indigenous peoples and then we're going to put it in this report because we all know we need another report. Um, but but failing on the reconciliation action part mm. um, is, you know, it's about reconciliation, action, not reconciliation, because you can't have one without the other, I think. That's so good. I really, really like that. I really like that. In 2022, Karen Howe published an article titled, Artificial Intelligence is Creating a New Colonial World Order. In this article, in this article, in this article, Howe discusses how uh, AI is enriching a powerful few by dispossessing communities that have been dispossessed before. She makes the following statement. The AI industry does not seek to capture land as the conquistadors of the Caribbean and Latin America did but the same desire for profit drives it to expand its reach. The more users a company can acquire for its products, the more subjects it can have for its algorithms, and the more resources, data, 
it can harvest from their activities, their movements, and even their bodies. Neither does the industry still exploit labor through mass scale slavery or mass scale slavery, which necessitated the propagation of racist beliefs that dehumanized entire population populations. But it has developed new ways of exploiting cheap and precarious labor, often in the global south, shaped by implicit ideas that such populations don't need or are less deserving of livable wages and economic stability. So for you, Robin, uh, and based on your research, what are the parallels that you see between colonization, AI, and indigenous communities? Yeah. Um, so I have this book open in front of me, actually. It's uh, Kate Crawford, The Atlas of AI. And it just resonates with me, what you just, the quote you just shared. Um, and she writes... The field of AI is explicitly attempting to capture the planet in computationally legible form. This is not a metaphor so much as the industry's direct ambition. The AI industry is making and normalizing its own proprietary maps as a centralized God's eye view of human movement, communication, and labor. And the thing that I think about when I'm thinking of, um, of this sort of view is if we are not as indigenous peoples doing AI for ourselves, then are we doing nothing but supporting that, that motion of um, planetary God's eye view. And I guess at the end of the day, one of the questions that I, I sort of ask myself is, are we comfortable with that? You know, are we, are we comfortable with that being the goal? And if we're not comfortable with that being the goal, what would be the goal of an indigenous perspective? And that's sort of just little ramble I'm thinking of right now. But um, essentially the same, the same logics that are used, as, as you just shared, to propel um, colonialism, so capitalism, policing, surveillance, militarization, they've all been deployed through AI, uh, which is in its very creation, it functions as a structure of power. And in this country where we continue to have um, so much division resulting from power, we now have this new layer, this, this thing creating this further divide. So people who support, advance, develop AI, um, they're, they're also furthering this, this global extraction. So it's not, as you said, like it's not just earth minerals and resources, but it's really about large scale human labor on top of all of that. And all of those things are needed across the entire AI supply chain, you know, the physical labor, mining minerals, um, that mental labor from computer programmers and, and developers. And a lot of those people who are doing that sort of big scale, large scale computer programming, um, they're in, they're in countries that aren't being paid you know, regular wages. Do you have any ideas on, on if there should be new AI regulatory bodies, um, perhaps indigenous regulatory bodies that are responsible for implementing some uh, laws and regulations um, onto these systems that were being deployed these days? Yeah, so I know that at different government levels, there are a couple of sort of processes being implemented where there will be these um, potentially have like governing indigenous or indigenous groups of people coming together to uh, do like policy reviews and govern certain um, certain acts and, and make sure that things align 
Um, I mean, whether or not that's going to be effective is to be determined. In my personal opinion, do I think that's going to work? No, because I don't think that they're going to possibly be able to hire enough skilled people and provide them the appropriate wages and time in order to do that review in an effective collective manner that actually acknowledges that there's you know, more Indigenous peoples than this, just that group of people. Um, but I think that it's really up to everybody to be responsible. Everybody should be held responsible for, for um, as, you know, thinking about the real honest pathway that AI has the potential to continue to take. That needs to be open and transparent. And when everybody is appropriately informed of the potential harms, um, then, you know, we can find ways to collectively determine what that looks like moving forward. And it is going to be a challenge. It's going to be a challenge to, to have um, different groups having different opinions on what they want and where and how. And, um, but I think at the end of the day, that there needs to be sort of a maybe nationwide sort of understanding, um, some sort of, well, definitely a universal understanding of the risks for today and into the future. But I think at the same time, having the hard conversations around like, okay, are we, are we universally comfortable with having our food uh, genetically modified uh, to such a point that it no longer resembles what it once was? Are we universally comfortable with being surveilled and monitored to such an extent that it impacts our ability to access healthcare or insurance or other things? Um, Are we, are we comfortable with maybe not having access to certain jobs? Are we comfortable with people having more power than others? Are we okay with that? And if there is a consensus and everybody's just okay with turning a blind eye, then who am I as one person to say, oh, Indigenous peoples, what are you doing? Because if that's, if that's what Indigenous peoples choose, then, then that is, that's the collective decision but until there is truth and until there's honesty behind what is actually happening moving forward and, and what could potentially come of this, um, then, you know, we can't really reach an appropriate consensus, whether you're in a group of people, whether you're part of some sort of agency or there is some sort of regulation body, which, I mean, those things are going to happen. Um, there will be. But, but who pays for those things? Who is accountable to those things? How is accountability measured? And how, who's being accountable to the land in all of that? And so um, just sort of thinking like acknowledging and recognizing Indigenous people's inherent rights as uh, stewards and as caretakers of the lands and waters. You know, we have these corporations who are advancing AI and they're very eager to make profit. Um, even, you know, I mean, in a lot of ways they're accountable to making profit to their stakeholders to, to maximize returns on, on those investments. But having that sort of genuine recognition of what is at stake um, and, and the power dynamics that AI is influencing we need to ensure that we're, we're centering Indigenous peoples as those inherent landholders, as those inherent stewards, to ensure that we are respecting and, um, and you know, being honest throughout all of those processes. And we can't do that unless, um, unless we're transparent.
yeah, so I guess we can't really make these regulations unless everyone knows exactly what we're regulating and what these systems are capable of doing. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So based on everything that we've heard today, Robin, what would you say young researchers um, should be looking at and listening to that are interested in contributing to the responsible deployment of AI? I think more people need to read, um, listen, watch, absorb, share. We need to remember that this is about power and money. It's always been about power and money. And, and the stories um, that we hear about AI and all of its greatness, those stories are overshadowing all of the stories around its potential harms. And I think that that's intentional. Uh, so we're being distracted by this this you know, contemporary form of colonialism and ultimately the same people who have always lost are continuing to lose. And so if we want to uh, nourish a group of researchers and young people to grow up and um, develop and deploy AI in a way that's effective, then, then taking the time to really consider AI's trajectory in relation to its continuance uh, of the global colonial agenda, to see those parallels, um, I think is really important. For instance, Indigenous peoples in rural and remote communities have been demanding improved access to healthcare uh, for for decades. I mean, it's not a secret. They there's a there's a deep and increasingly widening gap in the availability of services and service providers, particularly following COVID. And when you look at the world through an AI and technological lens exclusively, you will seek to maybe find an AI or technological solution that you can deploy into those communities as a solution to all those challenges. Look at me, I'm solving problems. But those solutions end up being only a Band-Aid. And when you open your mind and your heart to the realities of the people that you're, you're attempting to support, because that looks like help, right? It's, it's coming out. Perhaps, it's, perhaps you're a wonderful person and you have this really fantastic idea. And perhaps it is a really great idea. But until you can open your mind and your heart to the experiences of Indigenous peoples or the people that you're looking to help um, and see their experience and see that technology, it, you know, it can be used as a support. It can be used to support improvements, but it shouldn't be the solution. Um, and so like sending machines in to do the jobs of humans, for instance, sending those into communities, you're creating a further disconnect. You're creating further harm. These things, um, as I've said, you know, it's this cycle. It's this continuous relationship. Everything is connected. So if you put a machine in to do the job of a human, um, you're eliminating that human connection. You're eliminating jobs. You're creating further disconnect, further distrust. And um, and when things don't go well, what happens? What happens in those situations when you know it's just not working properly? And at the same time, you have this sort of increased community suspicion around this this tool. You know, what is it doing in a community where wireless internet connectivity and a clean and clean drinking water are already challenges or non-existent? Ultimately, as as you think about um, becoming a researcher and you think about research, you need to recognize that sometimes the things that we do and use to make things better may not be the best solution. Um, 
because they can create that bigger wedge between Indigenous peoples and at the end of the day, their ability to revitalize community traditions and knowledges. Recently, I heard an elder who was speaking um, at a conference I was at a few weeks ago, and he was speaking about wanting to take his grandchildren out on the land. And um, he said, but they're too busy. They're too busy on their phones, on their iPads, on their TikTok and their YouTube. They don't want to go outside. They don't want to go on the land. They don't want to learn. And so if Indigenous peoples are stewards of the land, and and if we if we can't continue to hold that that role and pass that on and teach it to our youth and advance that 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 knowledge uh, in the ways that we always have. If, as stewards of the land, where does that leave us in, in 20 years? Where does that leave us in 40 years um, and in the seven generations to come? So, you know, just thinking outside the colonial box. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And kind of on the flip side, you kind of mentioned this to all the techno optimists and the techno solutionists out there. What is the one thing that you'd want, you know, software developers and engineers to think about every time that they're coding the next machine learning model that are going to be affecting these humans, these indigenous peoples that we're talking about today? Um, what would I want them to think about? Yeah. I would really want them to spend some time... bridging that um, mental relationship, like that connection between colonialism of the past and its ongoing work, uh, its ongoing agenda. And I think when people can read history and work your way through history and bring yourself to the present and see how nothing has changed as much as it looks like it has, the same agendas, the same priorities, the same players, all advancing the same conversation, except now doing it through um, this type of technology instead of uh, previous types of technologies. But I mean, extraction has always been the case. information and data extraction has always been the case except you know maybe 500 years ago it was more about where are the beavers um how many how many beavers are there in in your community because we've 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 destroyed all the beavers back where we're from and oh where are your paths and where are your trails and and when when you can see that connection between the past and the present and sort of do that unlearning because it's a deep process. It's a very uncomfortable process of unlearning. Um, Then at a minimum, you approach this work with greater empathy, with greater concern, with greater recognition of its potential harms. And, you know, when you're building something or developing something that could create uh, further further harm for people that you have that basis to say okay I should stop this one doesn't need a patent so I'm going to destroy this one and um, you know as as many as many scientists have done over the years they create things and they're like oh, you know what this probably should never get in the hands of people and and sometimes we have to make those tough choices okay yeah and then let's uh, practice the closing remarks and then we'll be good to go. So we'd like to thank Dr. Robin Rowe for sharing her insights and knowledge on indigenous data governance, data sovereignty, and what is necessary for a responsible deployment of AI among indigenous communities and beyond. We hope that these important conversations continue as the age of AI dawns upon us all. Stay tuned for the next episode of the Responsible AI Podcast.
Uh, can I say something before we yeah, run away? Yeah, please do. Yeah, jump in. Um, I was just thinking, I didn't really answer that last question from the algorithm perspective because I never picked up the word algorithm when you were speaking. So <laughs> I just wanted to say um, when it comes to, I mean, I, as, as I said, I'm not a qualitative or a quantitative researcher. I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm a qualitative researcher. So I'm, I'm a little bit limited in my understanding of the deployment and the creation of algorithms. But from my understanding of, of an algorithm, um, AI algorithms are designed to make predictions about the future based on the past. And so sort of from this critical sociological perspective that I sit in, you know, I question how we can expect that something that's designed using models that are rooted in colonial and racist ideologies, you know, how can we expect that to make predictions about a future that is any better than our past? So if we want an algorithm and we want research to be effective, would, would we not want to first correct the wrongdoings that we're already aware of so that we can train models using the best possible outcome data because we made it real and then apply those mechanisms so that we can predict how to maintain the good instead of always just sort of predicting the same, the, you know, based on the past, right? So ultimately we need to find ways to enhance that sort of collective understanding, that collective unity for the earth, for all of creation and, uh, say no say no to systems that further inequities and work together to create a world that you know we're not ashamed of and we're not ashamed leaving to our ancestors and our future generations i want to applaud that oh my goodness that was so perfect thank you for <laughs> thank you for asking to to continue i'm so glad we captured that that concludes our conversation we thank Dr. Rowe for sharing her insights and knowledge on Indigenous data governance, data sovereignty, and what's necessary for a responsible deployment of AI among Indigenous communities and beyond. We hope that these important conversations continue as the age of AI dawns upon us all. Stay tuned for the next episode of the Responsible AI Podcast. <laughs>